everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith, and this episode is presented by Draft. I'll talk more about it later in the show, but if you want to play in the largest season-long tournament ever, download the Draft app or go to draft.com, sign up using our code 4 for 4 just like it's spelled in the website address, and check out their $3.5 million best ball championship. Today's guest is Alex Gelhar, a new addition to the team at 444.com and a former fantasy analyst at NFL.com. We're going to kick off the show with a review of some tough-to-evaluate fantasy situations stemming from Alex's league-wide review of targets and touches in 2018. Then we'll discuss our favorite next-gen stats and some other more traditional stats that we like to apply to fantasy football. And then later, Alex and I are going to go deep on how to assess and weigh different forms of risk against each other when evaluating players, with a special segment to identify the greatest risks associated with some of the least risky players from the early rounds of drafts. From there, we'll close out the episode with a quick check-in on our Scott Fishball drafts. But quickly, before I bring Alex in, I want to remind you that all the tunes I use on my episodes can be found on the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify. This show's music is Binary Love by a short-lived British band called The Rakes from their album Capture Release, which came out way back in 2005. And if any of you listeners were playing FIFA Soccer back in 2006, you might also know their song Strasbourg from the same album, which was on the game soundtrack. Uh, With all that out of the way, though, Alex Gilhar is here. Keep an eye out for his upcoming work at 444.com and follow him on Twitter at Alex Gilhar. Welcome to the show, sir. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be uh, joining the 444 team uh, this summer. Yeah, and before we get into what the listeners can look forward to from you on the site, I want to talk a little bit about some of your previous work at NFL.com. Uh, you, your last published article there was one called 2018 Targets and Touches in Review, and you looked at all the different uh, air yard shares, I think, and target shares. Can you can you talk a little bit about that article and what went into it? Well, it was, you know, using a lot of the resources we have, like the great airyards.com from Josh Hermsmeyer and other things, and it was kind of just trying to take a big picture, you know, thousand foot view look at each team and uh, what sort of happened for them how um everything went who got the targets who didn't who saw more air yards uh so it was a bit of a bear to write but uh, i think there was a lot of good uh, a lot of good info in there and i was glad you brought it back up yeah i think there's a lot that we can learn by looking back at our previous analysis and i want to use that article as a bit of a springboard because a lot has changed since you wrote it right we've had free agency we've had the draft and a lot of these team situations have changed, and I want to dig into that a little bit with you, and I want to start with the Baltimore wide receivers. I know this isn't uh, a sexy topic because it's possible that none of these guys are going to be very viable in fantasy, but which of these guys, if any, should we be drafting? We're looking at Willie Sneed, Marquise Brown, Miles Boykin, Chris Moore, Jordan Lasley. Uh, Do you have interest in any of these guys? Are there any silver linings here? Uh, I mean, I think you could talk yourself into a story where you take Marquise Brown, especially if you're in a league that has bonuses for long long TDs or yardage milestones. You know, there are some some leagues that get pretty aggressive in their scoring where if you hit 100 yards, or, you know, on DraftKings, too, and stuff like that, if you hit 100 yards, gives you a bonus. I used to play in a league many years ago where touchdowns over 40-plus yards, you know, got, a, got you an additional bonus. So there's certainly uh, an upside there with him, but it's going to be so hard otherwise to predict with these guys in a low-volume passing attack. Um, as you mentioned in the, that old article for NFL.com, like they spread the ball around quite a bit. Like Willie Sneed only had an 18% target share. Michael Crabtree had an 18% target share. John Brown had 17%, although he's now gone to Buffalo. But when you're getting that small of a target share in an already lower volume passing offense, it, it's really tough to buy into any of these guys, even at their extremely depressed ADPs. I mean, we would hope and expect Lamar uh, Jackson to progress a little bit in year two. They might try to open it up more, but like, those hopes and dreams uh, aren't really enough for me to buy in on too many of these wide receivers. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think this is one of those situations where you wait and see. You don't draft any of them. You see if one of them maybe pops in week one, if we see a little bit more volume for a particular receiver. But I have a feeling that for the most part, what you talked about with the overall lack of passing volume in this offense, that's going to be the rub with all these guys. And we're not really going to want to be rostering any of them week to week. Now in best ball, that's a different scenario. But I think most of our listeners are looking at this from a you know a season-long perspective where they're going to have to pick which weeks to start these players in. Um, right, and that might oh, oh sorry, that might be a case where these guys could make good streamers potentially as we get more information as the season develops. You know, sometimes we find defenses that are incredibly suspect to the long ball, and if that's the case, or maybe it's a game that might be a little bit more high scoring. If a guy like Marquise Brown is on the waiver wire, you might want to pick him up that week and throw him in your flex. But you know, like you said, it's going to be too hard to predict, and having that guy burning a hole on your on your bench all season or in your starting lineup uh, could be devastating. 
Yeah, and you mentioned John Brown departing for the Bills. I want to look at a different position group on Buffalo, and that's their running back core. It's kind of a mess now. They have LaShawn McCoy, Devin Singletary, T.J. Eldon, and Frank Gore. Which of these guys, if any, should we be targeting in our drafts? I mean, I think calling this backfield a mess is putting it mildly. Uh, <laughs> you've got two. You've got two aging former superstars. You've got. TJ Yeldon, who's got the look of maybe a journeyman, and he showed some value, you know, with the Jaguars before he signed with the Bills in free agency. But the trouble is, now that he's in Buffalo, his best asset from a fantasy perspective, his pass catching, could be mitigated both because they drafted Devin Singletary in the third round, who's a very capable, uh, shifty pass catching back, and also because Josh Allen has shown a propensity to tuck the ball and run, and he's quite good at it. I mean, he was their leading rusher uh, over the last several weeks. And uh, history has kind of shown us that a lot of these quarterbacks that trust their ability to run and are, are more prone to do that as opposed to the check down really like, ruin the value of some of those pass catching backs in their offenses. You think about like early Cam Newton before they got him Christian McCaffrey and designed a lot of plays to him. Uh, and Robert Griffin III didn't target his backs much a lot back in the days in Washington. So for those reasons, I, I don't really want to touch LaShawn McCoy or Frank Gore. Like LaShawn McCoy really looked like Father Time was weighing down on him in all those many years and touches last year. And then I'm never going to doubt Frank Gore until he officially hangs up his cleats, but he's not a guy I want to hinge my fantasy hopes on this season. Yeah, we know Brian Dable wants to run with that offense, but it's just too many guys to you know piece together. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about Yeldon. I really like him as a player. I've, I've always been a bit of a Yeldon truther, but all that stuff you talked about with Josh Allen, you know, scrambling instead of checking down, uh, is is a big fear in the back of my mind. And I just think ultimately the veterans' presence in this backfield is the main issue. I think that they're going to command enough work, each of them, McCoy and Gore, so that none of these Buffalo running backs get enough consistent volume to be relevant in fantasy. This is another situation I think we should probably just stay away from, but. I don't know, man. In the drafts that I've been doing, in practice, it seems to be getting a little ridiculous. Like, I'm seeing LaShawn McCoy slip into the double-digit rounds, and I, I get it. Like, I, again, I don't want to draft him, but I wonder at what point he becomes a value. Do you have any read on that? Like, if he slips to the 15th round, would you consider drafting LaShawn McCoy? Yeah, I think if it's getting down that far, that the opportunity of potentially even for a few weeks early on in the season, maybe before somebody else emerges or, or you know, God forbid, injury sets in, to have a semi-featured back is certainly tantalizing but like you said it's hard to know what the split's going to look like i do think this could be a case where if we're lucky a leader might emerge in uh the preseason as we've seen with sometimes like the preseason is largely worthless for fantasy but one thing that can be telling is how a running back looks and how they're running like i think back to a couple years ago when mark ingram kind of had his breakout season with the saints he was crushing it in that preseason and a lot of people that paid attention to that and you know took him in the middle rounds of their drafts really got a good reward from that yeah, I, I think there is value there to whoever might become a featured guy if there is one. If I had to bet, I think that would have to be McCoy or Singletary. I just don't see Gore doing it based upon his age and you know previous history. I don't see Yeldon doing it based upon his usage profile from previous seasons. Do you agree that McCoy or Singletary is probably the best bet to become that potential bell cow in Buffalo? Yeah, I feel like McCoy would probably be the one I would put better odds on. I, I understand the appeal with Singletary because he is electric and they, they invested relatively high draft capital in him, taking him in the third round this year. But, I mean, he's kind of an undersized small school back. And uh, there's always that allure when, you know, somebody gets drafted a little higher in the draft. You think of like an Alvin Kamara or Kareem Hunt. But by the same token, there's a lot of guys that we try to sell ourselves on and buy into in that third and fourth round that end up costing fantasy drafters if they reach too high. I'm thinking about guys like CJ Procise, uh, Royce Freeman last year, Samaj P. Ryan, you know, names like that come to mind as well, where the pedigree might not quite be there as much like it was with a Camara. Yep, throw Rashad Penny in there as well. Let's um, yep. move on to a, a more, uh, I guess, rosy team outlook with the Panthers wide receivers. And Devin Funch has vacated 16% of the team's targets and a whopping 25% of their air yards from last year. So with that in mind, I would expect to see DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel, you know, rocketing up into solid wide receiver one and wide receiver two values and drafts. And DJ Moore is pretty close, but do you think in general we might be undervaluing DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel? I think as the as fantasy industry people go, certainly not, because I feel like I can't log on to Twitter any day anymore without seeing somebody hyping up DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, or both. Um, both are talented youngsters um, with plenty of fans around here, and I think you can find arguments for both of them. I, last I checked, I think DJ Moore was creeping into wide receiver two territory in terms of his ADP, 
But uh, Samuel's still hanging around down there a little bit more. So he might, if anybody is undervalued, I think it'd be him. And uh, you could just go to Matt Harmon, who's been uh, standing for Curtis Samuel quite a bit on uh, Twitter.com these days. I don't think I'm going to reach too far for either one, but if the price is right, I'll certainly will not hesitate to grab either of them. Yeah, DJ Moore feels like one of those perfect guys to target in the fourth or fifth round if you went running back heavy and you missed out mm-hmm. on all the big-time lead receivers. Samuel is just going so late that it, it he almost has to be a value, and so I, I do like targeting him at some point in your drafts. It all comes down to kind of, for me, when when it feels like you know you need that type of upside dart throw. Because uh, I, I don't think he's a guaranteed wide receiver, too, by any stretch of the imagination, but the potential is there. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you just have to like his versatility and the way they were they were creating plays for him towards the end of last year, the Panthers were, and uh, all reports are that he's kind of taking that next step. He's, he's an athletic specimen. He was a dual threat coming out of college, playing wide receiver and running back. So the, the upside is, like, is possibly like a Percy Harvin-level player who, for a couple years before injuries and migraines took their toll on him, it was, was just about as dynamic and, and safe as you could get in, in fantasy with his, the amount of touches and the ways the Vikings used to use him. Yeah, and I think we because we saw at least some of that potential in season last year, there that is a little bit more appealing to me. Like I've seen him produce in some capacity at the NFL level, so I'm ready to buy into Curtis Samuel. I think that's a lot of it. I think tied into this potential misvaluation of DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel, there's also potential that Cam Newton is being undervalued because we've seen what he does when he's healthy. Since 2012, he's finished as a top five fantasy quarterback. And every year that he stayed healthy for the full season, do you think that there's some upside for Cam that's you know being untapped? Like maybe he's just not as sexy of a pick anymore, so people are you know moving on to the the shinier new toys like Kyler Murray and, and players like that. I, I think there certainly is uh, maybe a little bit of recency bias. People that took Cam and then got burned by his nagging shoulder injury that he played through all, all last year, and that's certainly a concern. You know, uh, you don't want reach too far sometimes on a quarterback who's coming off of uh, a throwing <laughs> injury such as uh, the shoulder there for him but I, I agree with you I think Cam's been undervalued he's a tremendous been a tremendous fantasy quarterback his entire career and you could easily make the case that this might be the best set of weapons he's ever had around him with McCaffrey Moore and uh, Curtis Samuel there yeah and I like how flexible all three of those guys are together they can all potentially work in short yardage areas a little further down the field like maybe not McCaffrey who's coming out of the backfield but these guys are quick and they're elusive, and that means that you know they can do a lot at different levels of the field and different quadrants of the field, you know, side to side. And I think that mm-hmm. could really open things up for Newton. I'm I'm really excited to see what this offense looks like, you know, now that kind of all these pieces are together, and we're not worried about you know getting too many targets to to Devin Funches. You know what I mean? Absolutely. All right, now let's get over to the Lions wide receivers. One thing that stood out to me from your article was just how big of a target share Kenny Galladay demanded last year. He had 39% of the team's targets, and I'm curious how close you think he can get to repeating that target share from last season. I don't think he has any chance of repeating that target share. That was pretty magical, and it was kind of like a total confluence of a bunch of events. You know, Golden Tate was traded. Marvin Jones missed seven games with injury. It just kind of became a case where they had to funnel everything through Galladay. They didn't really have many secondary options to be relied upon other than, you know, Theo Riddick was was still hanging around there and and caught his usual 70-ish targets. But uh, I love Galladay. He's a phenomenal talent. He's a specimen. I had him in a couple leagues last year, and he was great. But that Matt Patricia team, they want to be a run first team. They they want to, you know, as much as it pains fantasy players to hear, establish the run. So I think Galladay's still going to be a fine fantasy asset, but anybody that's getting caught drafting him thinking about what he did last year could end up being sorely disappointed. So where do you think that that target volume is going to go then? Like who's going to be the most consistent third option in the passing attack? Because to me, I don't really see anybody on that roster except for the running backs, you know, theoretic carry on Johnson and that's mostly because we know Matt Patricia wants to run, which means he's probably going to have his rushers on the field a lot. With that said, I, I do expect most of Matthew Stafford's targets to be concentrated on Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones. And I think ultimately what this de- what this means to me is that Jones is probably the most undervalued guy in the, on this team. Do you agree with that, or do you think there's somewhere else that these targets might end up? No, I'd certainly agree with that because we, you know, Jones has a good history with Stafford. He's a great player as well, and it makes sense that the targets would trickle to him as opposed to, you know, T.J. Hawkinson, who's a, a rookie tight end. Granted, people are labeling him the next Gronk. Well, that remains to be seen. But rookie tight ends traditionally struggle to make a huge impact in fantasy as they're adjusting to the game. But I think you're absolutely right with Jones because the trouble is, even with Riddick in years past, we were able to rely on him in PPR formats, and he still got his 70-ish targets. 
uh, last year. Carry uh, on Johnson is a, a very capable pass catcher as well, and he got a bunch of targets and receptions last year. So you have to wonder if he's going to be more featured and healthier this year. Is that going to eat into Riddick's targets? Is that going to eat into Hawkinson's? I mean, aside from those top two guys, this is just not an offense I'm looking to go too deep in on. Like Johnson's a solid running back as well to take, you know, in the in the middle of rounds. But in, from years past, this is this is a far cry from the Lions' offense where we could just kind of pick up people and, and throw them in whenever we felt like it. Yeah, but Johnson feels like that type of player who's in that danger zone of the draft, right, where we, we want to prop him up because he seems like the featured back, but because they have mm-hmm. C.J. Anderson, because they have Theo Riddick, maybe he isn't actually going to be featured as much as fantasy owners might want. I mean, do you, do you think that's going to be the case? Where do you fall on carry on Johnson? It's got to depend on both my kind of my team construction, I'd say, and where he falls in the draft, because you're exactly right. There are plenty of concerns. He wasn't truly featured last year. Um, it, when he would get the touches, he would deliver gangbusters for us in fantasy, but it's so hard to rely on, and he might become more game flow dependent because I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I feel like last year when the Lions came, were behind or were running their two-minute offense, it was much more still theoretic, and on Johnson was on the sideline, which can you know be very damaging to a guy's overall appeal if the team like the Lions, for instance, might not be as good and might not be playing with a lead all the time. Yeah, fair enough. Um, another target hog from last season and this one's a little bit more predictable or i guess not not as surprising as michael thomas of the saints he had 28 percent of new orleans targets but i was surprised to see how low the target shares were for all the other wideouts there in new orleans eight percent target shares are lower for ted ginn traquan smith keith kirkwood cam meredith i mean not that cam meredith even really played but you, you get what i'm saying the wide receivers beyond michael thomas didn't get very consistent work and I'm curious what sort of target distribution you expect to see from the Saints offense this season. Do you think it's going to change at all? I don't foresee it changing too much. This reminds me of the the Steelers teams for years before Juju Smith-Schuster came about when it was Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell monopolizing all of the targets. And people would always try to find a sleeper, whether it be another receiver or maybe, you know, a Heath Miller or uh, Ladarius Green (laughs) tight end year uh, from way back in the day. But when you have two truly elite talents like that, it's kind of hard sometimes for anybody else to step up and command a share that we're going to be that's going to merit our attention in fantasy. Um, Traquan Smith, maybe he showed some flashes last year, but Ted Ginn's still hanging around, uh, so I'm not really loving any of those kind of tertiary options. The one caveat I would add, though, is the addition of uh, Jared Cook, who has been a better tight end over recent years, and Breeze has a history of targeting his tight ends as well, so. I think Cook probably shouldn't be overlooked after uh, you know those top-tier guys and, and otherwise thin tight end position come off the board. Oh, when you said two elite talents, I thought you meant Michael Thomas and Jared Cook. Who else were you talking about, Alex? <laughs> Alvin Kamara in terms of getting getting targets. Yeah, I kind of kind of glossed over that when I made the old Steelers <laughs> reference. But uh, no, yeah, Jared Jared Cook is great, and uh, I really think he could be a sneaky sneaky uh, thriver there in the New Orleans offense. Yeah, I'm with you. He's one of those guys I'm very happy to take if I do miss out on the top seven or eight tight ends or so. And he's probably right in that in that zone with, uh, you know, Vance McDonald, Austin Hooper, kind of that range of player. And I think Cook is a, is a fine option in that space. I want to get to a different section of NFL.com's fantasy coverage, and I guess their football coverage in general, their next-gen stats. And I'm not sure how much work you did with those stats while you were at NFL.com, Alex, but do you have a favorite next-gen stat for fantasy? I think more so than any of the stats, which are all fun and they're developing, and I know the guys over there are trying to find new ways as they have more technology and and the the chip stuff evolves and they have more data to go off of. That They'll probably come up with some more uh, useful metrics and things. But one of my favorite ones was actually was just the charts that they would that would pump out shortly after the games of both like running back uh, the lanes they ran through the routes receivers took on their targets and catches uh, and then the quarterback spray charts as well because it was a really great way for you to distill the otherwise kind of uh, what's the word I'm searching for here like not revealing data you know like if you see somebody has a game well, as a wide receiver where they caught six of ten targets for 120 yards. You don't, and you didn't watch the game, you didn't catch it on Game Pass, you're not going to know so much, well, was that like two long passes and like a bunch of screens that went nowhere? Did they get a lot of yards after the catch? Was it air yards? Like what kind of things um, can I find out real quickly? And those charts are great for that. Like if you remember last year when uh, David Johnson was struggling mightily at the beginning of the year, I think James Coe, my old colleague at NFL.com, put out his uh, running chart in comparison to one from years past and David Johnson was just getting hammered up the middle. They were not using 
him as the dynamic athlete that he is to run out to the wings or to get him into space. So like things like that can be a real quick way to get insight into how a player is being used for both uh, you know managing your team and starting and sitting guys as well as picking up players on the waiver wire. If somebody had a good game, you can go look at how they were used and and uh, you know get a better sense of who you might want to add based on that. Yeah, those are really cool. I remember seeing a lot of those kind of posted on Twitter here and there throughout the season last year, and I, I definitely enjoyed that. You're right, kind of that visualization that allows you to give, get a little bit deeper of an understanding of how a player was used. It's definitely helpful, uh, a lot more helpful than looking at a box score. Uh, exactly. You mentioned air yards, and one of my favorite next-gen stats is for the quarterback position, the intended air yards metric. Because mm-hmm. I want to know which QBs are pushing the ball downfield. Show that to me. And that's a really easy way to distill that down to one number. But one thing I, I really like to do is cross-reference that against the completion percentage above expectation mark, where yeah. it shows you know what the expected completion percentage was, what the actual completion percentage was, and then you see the difference between the two. And I, I'm having a hard time kind of wrapping my brain around it because if I look at the guys who had at least 76 intended air yards per attempt and a Mm -hmm. positive completion percentage above expectation, meaning that they completed more passes than they were expected to. It's a pretty good list of fantasy quarterbacks. It's Roethlisberger, Luck, Goff, Mitchell Trubisky, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Jameis Winston, Dak Prescott, Phillip Rivers, Mm -hmm. Carson Wentz, Deshaun Watson, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, essentially an extension of Jameis Winston, Matt Ryan (laughs) and Russell Wilson. But I I guess what I don't understand is, are these quarterbacks all quote-unquote better, and that allows them to complete more passes than expected, or are they doomed to backslide after overperforming last year? And I also then start to wonder how much this completion percentage above expectation can be tied to the play caller or the offensive system, because are these quarterbacks finding extra success just because they're being set up well for it? Uh, It seems to me that that might be the case with many of those quarterbacks I just rattled off, Mm-hmm. because most of them play in relatively modern or forward-thinking offenses. I, I think the, the main exception in the list that I threw out there is Russell Wilson, uh, who led you know all these QBs in completion percentage of, above expectation. I think that's just one of those cases where, you know, new, newsflash, Russell Wilson is really friggin' good. You know what he's, I mean? He's pretty good at the football, yeah. yeah. No, those are some good stats to, to bring out as well. The intended air yards is great, because like you said, it shows you who is pushing that ball down the field, and... When it comes to wide receivers, I'm kind of touching on this a little bit, but air yards is a very uh, good statistic to look at to try and find value in some of those kind of tertiary players or later round guys. If they're if they're chewing up a lot of air yards, that's much more indicative of a potential breakout or big game than say like you know getting six targets. Yep, and but I guess all these questions that I'm raising are, are kind of the rub with next gen stats is I don't know if we necessarily know how to use them yet, especially the people like uh, like me who are on the outside, right? And I'm right. curious to see how that kind of develops how we figure out which ones which stats are sticky uh, you know year to year which ones have a little bit more noise in them and i'm I'm looking forward to seeing what what the next gen team does um now getting to like more traditional stats do you have any just kind of basic statistics that you like to use for fantasy that are i guess you know indicative for a certain position or another well since i mean fantasy is really all about opportunity there's no better way to figure out what uh, types of opportunity a player is going to be getting than their targets their snap share or you know their touches if it's somebody from the backfield so as as basic as those three are when you can look at them to figure out the whole picture it gives you a much better idea of what players especially you know some of these backups or or role players or committee backs uh which type of guys are actually going to um make a difference and i know it's a tougher stat to find sometimes but the uh like routes run is really useful as well for um, tight ends and other and you know running backs as well to get a sense of how involved they are in the passing game because a lot of tight ends might play you know 80% of the snaps but if they only run six routes a game then that's not very useful for you in fantasy you might want to find somebody that comes in and, and is involved a little more in the passing game yeah I love looking at snap share and just total snaps that's one that definitely stands out to me because not only does that show you how much a player is being used by his team. It also can show you a little bit about the pace of that team's play. And exactly. I, I think that's also very important and very helpful for DFS uh, snaps and snap share. I think that's a great call. Um, some other ones for me, just yards per attempt, adjusted net yards per attempt, like really basic efficiency stats like that are always going to give you a good idea about which quarterbacks are playing well. Um, I enjoy looking at touchdown rates for all positions because that makes for easy identification of outliers or regression candidates, you know, from season to season or even week to week sometimes. 
And I really love basically all the forms of DBOA from Football Outsiders. Uh, anybody yes. who's followed me over to this podcast from the 2QBs feed knows that uh, I'm really into DBOA and kind of looking at how two teams figure to stack up against each other in a weekly matchup based upon, you know, this person or this team's offensive DVOA versus the other team's defensive DVOA and then passing defense versus passing offense and things like that and trying to predict how game plans might come together and how game flow might play out. I think that if you can get a good read on that, I, it goes a long way towards helping you out in, you know, your lineup setting and in DFS. It, it's not a perfect science. It's definitely more <laughs> blackguard and alchemy than it is, uh, you know, complete you know, statistical analysis. But DVOA gives a, a good starting point for that, I think. Yeah, I was going to chime in when you mentioned DVOA because that's a great one as well, um, especially to think about when you look at games and you might look at the line from Vegas and it's weird teams with like a weirdly high line, you can kind of look at um, those DVOAs to see what types of matchups might be the ones to exploit in DFS or off the waiver wire. And particularly like when there's a team with a, a poor like passing defense DVOA, even if they're not playing a team with a great passing offense DVOA, that might be an indication like, hey, this game could turn into a shootout here with these teams, and it might be time to grab some of these other, other players in the passing attack and get them into my lineups. Yeah, definitely. Now, one thing I have found when looking at DVOA, and this is true with a lot of stats, is that the Teams in the middle are a little bit more difficult to predict, and that DVOA means less to me. What I really want to look at are those ones at the extremes, like the teams that have really bad pass defense or really bad rush defense or really good pass offense or really good yep. rushing offense, and trying to exploit matchups in that way. Because when you look at you know the 17th best passing defense versus the 20th best passing offense, it's kind of difficult to project how that's actually going to play out because they're both kind of a mixed bag in the first place. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what sort of statistic or measure do you wish existed? Like, what, what sort of measurement would you like to be able to get from the football field or from fantasy performance? So, to be honest, I kind of I kind of laughed when I saw this question uh, here because what's cool about the way fantasy has evolved in these last several years is that we're in an era where we're almost we're both like oversaturated with uh, new ideas and new metrics, but still like hungry for more and whenever somebody comes out with a new one it's like oh what is this how can we quantify it is this you know is it sticky to use the expression you you dropped earlier i don't have one off the top of my head that i would would love to have or or feel like i would need in fantasy also because you know football is kind of a, a beautiful chaotic mess at times all of our statistics and analytics can just go out the window mm -hmm. depending on how a game goes uh, so trying to nail down one killer stat seems like a, a bit of a fool's errand i do wish that there was something that that could help us be a little bit more predictive with uh, with quarterbacks and and lower lower tier guys, you know, trying to find streamers and exploiting value if you wait on a quarterback in season long leagues. But just given the nature of the game, I don't think we're ever going to get one of those. One thing that I would really like to see is some way to measure results relative to the intent of a specific player. For example, like how much accuracy does a quarterback actually have? Like when a, a quarterback puts the ball quote you know only where the receiver can get it. How do we know if that was actually the intent of the thrower? Like, you'll see that happen sometimes where a quarterback will throw the ball really low down at, like, someone's ankles, and, you know, the receiver's got long arms, he catches it in stride, and the, the defensive back can't get to it because it's so low. But what if the quarterback actually meant to, you know, lead the receiver further outside and higher, and he just missed? Like, I, I don't really know if that's something that's worth trying to quantify or even yeah. possible to. Uh, because maybe it all comes out in the wash, right? Like, right. If, if, if even if even if the intention is known, does that matter? It isn't the result of the play a little bit more important. I'm not sure. Like, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I feel like when you're trying to get into the uh, the, the the mens rea to use the legal term or the intentionality of decisions, it's going to get a little tough. Um, and also, you know, they're throwing that oblong football out there, so sometimes even their their best design might not be the the most accurate one. But uh, I think you're right when you say that it could end up being a wash because even if they don't fully intend it and it results in a great play, who are we to care what the what the intent was and as long as we got the result? Yeah, I just I think about. I guess really when I try to wrap my brain around this, it probably doesn't matter because if a quarterback is trying to do that stuff, they are the good ones are going to be able to do it more often, right? And we, mm -hmm. I just talked earlier about how Russell Wilson had a 5.2% completion percentage above average uh, or above expected. And so, so maybe that's the measure of it. Maybe it's you look at you know someone's expected results on the whole over the course of you know a whole game or a whole season, and you see you know 
what a maybe a baseline player would have done there. It's almost like war, uh, like wins above replacement or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know if we'll ever get there with football because there are so many guys on the field. And like you said, it's such a beautiful, chaotic mess. But I, I don't know. I, I just wish I could get in the, inside the heads of these players sometimes. <laughs> it would be nice. The other thing that's tough to uh, would be tough to analyze with a stat like that is these guys are, are so good and they spend so much time at this craft that a lot of them practice crazy stuff like that you know yeah. i think about like the and also i'm from wisconsin so i'm showing my bias here but aaron Rodgers several years ago became like the most lethal assassin with the back shoulder throw and it wasn't that they were always designed to be back shoulder throws but he like trained his receivers to always have their head around to know that that might be coming if he thought he had the advantage so it's you know in a lot of things like that i'm sure they drill like low passes like that and they do body control stuff on the sidelines and maybe they do more of that given a, a certain opponent in training that week so it's there's so many variables that come into something like that, even when you try to narrow it down on intent, that would, that would make it hard to quantify. All right, next I want to get into trying to qualify and quantify risk in fantasy drafts. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, and that's Draft. Listeners, do you want to join the biggest NFL season-long tournament ever? Of course you do. You love fantasy football, why not? You need to enter the $3.5 million best ball championship on draft. That's right, $3.5 million in real money. It is massive. Here's how their best ball format works. It's season long, but no management. You just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. There are no trades. There's no waiver wire. You don't even have to set a lineup because your best players get automatically started. You'll get your best score every week guaranteed. Of course, your opponents get that as well. But what that really boils everything down to is everyone's skill as a drafter. Whoever drafts the best team gets the best week-to-week results. And, you know, there's separate strategy that goes into best ball for that reason. But if you're good at drafting, you're going to be good at best ball. No salary caps. These are real-life snake drafts, just like you play with your friends in a season-long league. And there's no better place to play best ball because you can draft the team anytime you want on draft. Leagues start every couple minutes, so you could join one right now after you sign up. Just do one of these best ball drafts, and you could be a millionaire 16 weeks later. It doesn't get any easier than that. Join me on Draft today. You can download the app at any time if you go to the App Store or the Play Store and search Draft. Or you can play right from your computer on Draft.com, whatever's easier for you. Right now, all new players are going to get a free entry into a best ball draft when they make their first deposit. But you have to use the promo code from this podcast, 4 for 4 The number 4, F-O-R, then the number 4. That's right, you get to play in a real money game for free just by using our promo code 4 for 4 on your first deposit. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to Draft.com. Come play for free, get started right away, and the more you do, the more chances you have to win that $3.5 million best ball championship. All right, Alex, so trying to quantify and qualify risk in fantasy draft, I, I think an important starting point for this discussion is to say that all players share some universal risk and the probably I mean, the easiest way to illustrate that is with injury, right? There's a risk of injury on every play for every player, and you know the timing of those injuries can be pretty important. You know, getting hurt in the third preseason game is a lot different than getting hurt in week three or in week nine of the regular season. So let's try to leave injury out of this, right? Because if injury can befall any player, how much should injury risk factor into our decision making? And we, and we can talk about the corner cases later, but I think that in general we need to talk about other potential sources of risk. So, Alex, what is your approach to trying to gauge risk uh, when you're when you're looking at players to draft in in fantasy? Well, I think the first thing I do when it comes to trying to gauge risk is looking at what type of risk it is. Because, as you said, we're throwing out injury, but for some players, it's trying to project forward for an unproven guy. Maybe they had a a decent run at the end of last season, or um, a veteran player in front of them is left in free agency, and now they're going to be potentially assuming that mantle of uh, opportunity in the offense. Or is it somebody that's changed teams and is with a new quarterback or a new coordinator or what have you? And then once you kind of look at those factors and determine what, what the risk is and how severe it is, because you know an elite player changing teams in a new offense, not as much of a worry there as we saw, like for instance, with Amari Cooper last year, leaving, leaving the Raiders, going to the Cowboys. He was yeah. a very capable player, could hit the ground running there. Once you have all those assessed, for me, it's it's a balancing act. Like at certain times, there might be a player in the draft with upside so tremendous that you just have to take a swing on them early as as the drafts in the season have pushed their their ADP higher and higher. But generally, I'm more comfortable with big risks if I know I have a safer bet in place at the same position. You know, somebody who's been in the same offense with the same quarterback, coach, maybe, then I'm okay taking a swing on somebody. I I hate taking a risk on a position. At the at like wide receiver and running back, if it is my first pick there. So you know, for instance, if you were to go, 
zero RB, I would want somebody that feels a little more safe than maybe an unproven rookie or somebody like that as my first as my first running back if their situation is a little muddled. The onesie positions with tight ends and quarterbacks a little more open to taking risks and just backing them up and and you know living the stream and doing things like that. But uh, I'm not completely risk averse, but I like to just have a little bit of a safety net there if I'm reaching for somebody. Yeah, I love that. You mentioned kind of trying to avoid riskier players that you haven't seen produce at the running back position if if that's your first guy and. A really good illustration of that to me is Darius Geis. And we talked about how injuries aren't always something we can completely ignore. I mean, we do have to factor some amount of injury risk in. But what I like to do is I like to emphasize the risk related to recent injuries and recurring injuries, especially to like parts of the body that tend to be more problematic, like the back or something like that. And I think Geis is a really interesting test case for that because he's coming off an ACL tear and he's already injured his hamstring in this offseason. So I think with those things in place, fresh in my mind, I am willing to fade a player based upon injury-related bias, right? Whereas a player like Andrew Luck is now a full season removed from those shoulder concerns he had last offseason. That's all far enough in the rear view that I kind of, I just don't care about that anymore. Like I'm not considering Andrew Luck an injury-prone player because we saw what he did last season. Even while he was recovering, he put up a good a good year. So for me, yeah, risk related to injury definitely has to do with what have you done for me lately or what have you injured lately. Another thing that I like to emphasize is risk based upon the surrounding team, kind of like you talked about. Like if a team has a bad quarterback, that's probably bad for the entire offense. Somewhat similar to that, if your team has a bad defense, that's probably bad for running backs on that team who don't, don't catch passes, right? Because if that team is playing from behind a lot, they're not going to be able to hand the ball off very much, and that limits your running back's value. So looking at the surrounding team and letting that be uh, you know, a type of risk that you lean into, I think that makes sense as well. Definitely, and that's actually a good, a good segue uh, to a player we'll talk about later. But uh, I think you're right, and I kind of mentioned those factors. And when you're just analyzing that risk of a player and where they might be falling in the draft, you've got to look at, at ev- all of the risks. Like You can't just look at the risks associated with that player and their position group. You know, What are the risks? Are other players going to cut into their volume from other positions, like you said, the quarterback, the offensive line, there's, there's a lot of factors that can go into it with the risk that, that you can use to paint yourself a clearer picture and get a better idea of how comfortable you are taking somebody at a certain position. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, offensive scheme also factors into that. Like if I'm looking at the risk of a small workload related to a team's identity or play calling tendencies, I, I think that's something I might factor in a little bit more heavily. I want to you know, avoid secondary and tertiary receivers on run-first teams like the Bills or like the Ravens. We mentioned those earlier. I think mm-hmm. you want to be wary of quarterbacks on those types of teams as well because they're not going to pass as much. Now, in the case of Baltimore, Lamar Jackson is going to make up for that with his running, right? And so, like you said, it's a balancing act. It's about a confluence of all these different factors, right? Kind of getting back to the Bills, if I look at John Brown and he's on a run-first team with a suspect quarterback – and he's kind of been a routine health concern throughout his career. And I know a lot of that is related to the, the sickle cell issue that he deals with. But hey, this is his first season with the Bills. We've mentioned how you know a receiver changing teams can be dubious as well. I understand John Brown's upside as a deep threat receiver with a big arm quarterback. But I'm probably still staying away because of all these other little red flags that are kind of combining into one big red flag. Right? It's a, it's a patchwork. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and uh, John Brown's a great example because in a traditional league, I probably would not be keen on drafting him. However, as we'll talk about a little later in the Scott Fishbowl, I actually recently took him because I needed to take some upside, you know, big play threats to round out my team, and it's later in a, in a very deep draft. So ju- uh, you got to also measure your risks against the type of league and play, and play style you're in. Yep, format definitely matters. The bigger your field is, especially in DFS, the more risks you need to be willing to take. That doesn't mean you should always take them, but it just right. it needs to open up what you'll consider. All right, now give me a player with a specific sort of risk that you don't think is being talked about enough. Is there any guy who stands out to you? Well, actually, it's funny you mention it because this guy is a former superstar um, who seems to have lost a lot of the shine off of him, and, and I understand it uh, given the risks associated with him, and that's A.J. Green. Um, at his peak, he's a top-tier wide receiver. We've seen him do it year after year after year. However, the downside and the risk associated with him is he's had two injury-riddled seasons in his last three. Andy Dalton is still his QB, which is going to put a ceiling on his total upside. He plays on the Bengals, just full stop. <laughs> uh, Tyler Boyd is emerging, and that team is now in a division where that seems to be shifting powers with the Browns loading up and the Ravens looking good and the Steelers probably still going to be in the mix. So... 
there's just a lot of question marks with Green, but I've I've had a hard time like passing him up when I've been in SFB or other drafts or mocks when he falls to you in like the you know the fourth fourth round there. Yeah, that Nate Brown value with AJ Green is really tantalizing when he makes it to the end of the third or the early fourth, and I'm kind of the same way. I would keep drafting him there, and I I don't feel great about it. He is as much of a value as it seems to be. The guy for me is Kenyon Drake uh, because if the Dolphins are in full on tank mode. They could be a truly putrid team and really kill Drake's overall value, but he's still being drafted. I mean, he's not being drafted as if he's you know an elite bell cow. He's probably going in the, the fourth to sixth rounds in most drafts. But again, that's that kind of danger zone for running backs for me, where we take a guy because he's the lead back on his team, and Drake definitely has you know the ability to rush the ball and receive the ball, which is good. We'd like that. I just I see that team kind of what you just mentioned with the Bengals full stop. You know, Kenyon Drake is on the Dolphins full stop. Does he concern you at all this season? Yeah, he certainly concerns me. And you know, Kalen Balaj is there. We didn't see a ton of him. They picked up Mark Walton. Like it's just it's hard to tell what that backfield is going to look like. Um, and as much as you like Kenyon Drake's upside and some of the glimpses we've seen from him, he hasn't also ever been able to hasn't proven yet at any point that he can be a true featured back for an entire season. So that goes back to that thing we were talking about at the top of this section where you're trying to project forward, there's there's risks associated with the team, and it's just like where can you Drake ends up going? I really haven't been haven't been getting in on him yet. Yeah. Same way. Now, we're going to continue to kind of go dark side and, and be really pessimistic about a lot of players. But before we get there, um, let's let's spin it positive for one question. Give me a player with upside that you don't believe has been covered enough, like uh, as the opposite of risk here. We're looking at somebody who you project to be a lot better for you know some particular reason. And you don't think that that's been publicized quite enough by the fantasy community. <laughs> well, this is a very difficult question, as we talked about earlier, the, the oversaturation, and there's so many great minds working in this fantasy community and sharing ideas. Um, and I'm going to do a bit of a cop-out here, because I'm going to give you a position group as a whole, uh, and I think that's the Washington wide receivers. Um, they've got a lot of talent in that group with Josh Doxson and Paul Richardson, if he's healthy. They've got a new quarterback coming in, Dwayne Haskins. He's, he's shown he can be both an accurate timing passer, which could work really well for Jay Gruden's offense. And I think... If someone should emerge from that group, there's certainly potential given the value of those guys. Like they're hardly being targeted in drafts that I've seen. They could emerge and could be a total steal from some for somebody as a wide receiver three flex play kind of thing. Uh, now I don't know which one that's going to be. Haskins might show uh, you know a preference for targeting somebody, or the, the offense could change given his his skill set in there. But we've seen wide receivers. Um, be successful in fantasy out of Jay Gruden's offenses before. So I, that's just a, it's a group I'm going to be trying to watch in training camp and, and preseason to see if there are any early reports or big plays that start happening and maybe use one of those guys as, as a much later round dark horse. I love that call because it is completely wide open in that offense, but the only player being drafted with any sort of real capital is Darius Geis, who might be the riskiest guy exactly. in the offense. It's very strange to me. Like, I just drafted Chris Thompson in SFB. I think that he has a decent shot to be productive, especially if guys can't stay healthy. Jordan Reed is an interesting player. Someone in that offense, and potentially more than one player, are going to deliver more value than it took to acquire them in drafts. And I think that's a great call. Uh, for me, I'm going to go to a different team in that division, and I'm going to tab Evan Ingram, because what if he's simply the best receiving threat that the Giants have? Like, I like Sterling Shepard. I know that he's another one of Matt Harmon's boys. I, I think Golden Tate is fine, but I don't think he's the type of player who I'm excited to be drafting from a bad team. Whereas Ingram, you know, because of his ability to stretch the field a little bit more than someone like Tate, I feel like he's being properly valued for the most part. But I think the upside for Ingram is, you know, the tight end three or something like that. But I don't see a whole lot of people regarding him like that. Everybody's really excited to draft O.J. Howard and Hunter Henry. And we mentioned, you know, Jared Cook, Vance McDonald earlier. Yes, there's the risk that the Giants are going to be really bad. And everything I just said about Kenyon Drake and the Dolphins is going to come home to roost here for Evan Ingram and the Giants. But I think that there's more upside with him than people might be willing to admit do you agree yeah i certainly think there's a couple different stories you can tell yourself where ingram still has a very successful fantasy year even if the giants turn into a dumpster fire uh for one he, you've mentioned he's an athletic specimen and he can stretch the field he can go over the middle uh and eli has has shown he, he's not afraid to target him and then on the flip side even if in the event eli gets benched for daniel jones uh it, there's really not a lot of ton of data to back this up but you see it now and again with young quarterbacks leaning on their tight ends as a yep. safety blanket. It's a bigger target. 
it. They're a little less risky throws oftentimes, a little closer to the line of scrimmage. So Ingram could end up getting a bunch of volume that way. And when it comes to the tight end position, I mean, aside from those top-tier guys, it doesn't take a lot to crack that top 10 in fantasy. And, you know, Evan Ingram could, could push his way, like you said, into that top five again. You mentioned that tendency for young quarterbacks to lean on the tight end position and that really reminded me of Jacoby Brissett a couple years ago when he was filling in for Andrew Luck and just peppering his tight ends with targets so I I think you're completely spot on there I I love that uh all right let's go back to the dark side Alex and I want to play a little game with you that I'm going to call the bust association this is it's a word association type of thing you don't have to give me a single word but I'm going to give you a player name and you tell me you know, the first thing that comes to your mind for why you think that player will or might bust. So, for example, I could say Darius Geis, and you might say ACL or injury setback, or you might say offensive line, or you might say Dwayne Haskins, a rookie quarterback, like all these different things that could be the primary reason why Darius Geis busts. And admittedly, I'm going to try to pick more difficult players to peg for downside. I'm going to do a lot of early round guys here to kind of illustrate some points. But um, I don't know, does this all make sense? Are you ready to go? Absolutely. All right, first up, Alvin Kamara. Uh, Father time knocks out Drew Brees. We've seen this sometimes with with aging quarterbacks. They're able to give Father Time the the, the old Heisman, the stiff arm for a long time, but when he comes, he he comes with full force, and it can certainly tank an offense if there's a dramatic quarterback shift. If the next man up, you know, isn't quite ready to to lead the offense in the same way, defenses will change how they scheme and defend players and while Kamara is a, a singular talent and can catch passes and he probably would be fine you know if all of a sudden it's Taysom Hill under <laughs> under center for for several games it could really cripple Kamara's scoring upside because he scored so many touchdowns last year too which was a big part of his fantasy uh is him as a fantasy asset and if the scoring isn't there if the offense isn't moving the chains it could really it could cripple him so what do you think the likelihood of that is this season do you think Drew Brees is going to finally fall off the cliff because He's not being drafted as if that might happen. No, I mean, he he put up great numbers last year, but down the stretch, he's his deep ball kind of went away. He didn't have quite the same zip on his passes. And it's tough to say if that was just fatigue from the year, if there was some other injury, he wasn't quite leading on. But uh, you'd never know. There's no clear line of delineation for quarterbacks when Father Time is going to say, you know, your run is over. But but when he comes, it's 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 brutal. Yeah, the cliff is steep when it does come. All right, next up, Travis Kelsey. Uh, target share, and by this, I mean Kelsey was a you know a vacuum for targets last year and did everything, scored touchdowns, got yards. But uh, Tyreek Hill still like going to be there. They've got uh, Damian Williams. What if Sammy Watkins steps up? You know, what if teams are keying in on Travis Kelsey a little more and Mahomes just decides to spread the wealth around? Because he's going so high in drafts, um, especially drafts like SFB that have a tight end premium. That if that that target share dips a little bit, people might be upset they opted for him over maybe one of those other elite wide receivers or running backs as early as Travis Kelsey is going yeah for me the answer would probably just be the nature of the tight end position you know these guys are big they take a lot of hits you know blocking and you know receiving the ball it's easier for them to get injured based upon that type of usage I feel like and Kelsey is a freak like he's he's huge he's out there you know demolishing guys for a reason but maybe that finally comes home to roost for him I I agree that you know, maybe he's not going to see quite the same target share. But with that said, I, I drafted him in the first round of SFB, so I'm not, obviously not too concerned. Uh, next up, Julio Jones. Uh, this one's an easy one, and it goes back to, you know, some great some great jokes we had on Twitter a few years ago. But touchdown woes <laughs> and red zone usage. You know, the Julio Jones touchdown watch, like, captivated the fantasy industry for so, for so long. It's hard to say he'd be a total bust because, I mean, the guy's put up over 1,400 yards in five straight seasons and over 80 catches in every one of those seasons. But... People love their touchdowns. They love the big games. And if, you know, with Calvin Ridley emerging and Devonta Freeman back healthy, if Julio Jones struggles to get into the end zone on a regular basis, a lot of people could feel slighted and like he turned into a bit of a bust for him. I wonder if there are also some potential game script concerns with Julio because, you know, the Atlanta defense was just annihilated by injuries last year. I think that they're going to be better this year. And Atlanta went big on the offensive line. So maybe they run a lot more this season. I kind of doubt it, but that's in the back of my mind as well. I think that there might be some game script issues with the overall passing volume that we might expect from the Falcons. No, it's certainly a good point that the middle of their defense too, with their linebackers and safeties just got ripped apart and teams were able to feast on that last year. All right, next up, Joe Mixon. Bengals. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Uh, Much for the similar reasons I listed above with uh, why there were some concerns around AJ Green, but uh, you know, Giovanni Bernard is still there. They've their first round pick, 
the line the lineman I'm, his name is escaping me at the moment got injured they just had another lineman retire so like there's a lot of question marks along that whole offense and as we talk about game script if they're not able to move the ball and then all of a sudden the the Bengals are behind like Joe Mixon's probably not going to be getting the the amount of touches we would like to see in fantasy yeah O-line is definitely the first thing that popped into my mind but I love that you called out just the Bengals in general, because I think another big concern with Mixon potentially is the schedule of that team, because they have two games versus each of the other teams in that division, you know, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. All of those teams project to have decent to good defenses, uh, and they have other games against Seattle, Buffalo, Jacksonville, the Rams, and New England. So that's a lot of potentially tough opponents that Mixon's going to have to face, uh, and a lot of those teams have pretty good offenses as well, which means that you know Mixon might have to do more of his damage in the receiving game than on the ground running the ball. So I, I think there are maybe a few more red flags with him than some might be willing to accept when they you know click the draft button at the end of the first round or beginning of the second round. Right. I think there are actually a couple other divisions that stack up like that for me. Uh, I look at the NFC North. Chicago and Minnesota are good. I think Green Bay's defense... You know, we, we can project them to be ascending to some degree based upon the types of draft investments they've made over the past couple of years. And Detroit at least wants to have a defensive mindset, you know, that ground and pound mentality. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of the players in that division might be a little bit more suspect than we're willing to admit because of the division they play in. Are there any other divisions like that that stand out to you as ones that are just a little dicier from, you know, a defense's played sort of standpoint? No, you know, I think we hit the big ones there. I mean, you'd like always to go back to that uh, to the NFC West, which had been the case for many years with Seattle and Arizona. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the 49ers defense should be good. Seattle's defense is kind of a little bit in flux. I don't think Arizona's defense is quite up there. But off the top of my head, no, I don't think there's a, I think the NFC North was a good call, though, because um, the Packers defense, too, at times was quite good last year. They got sold out by a an underperforming offense uh, all too frequently. But as you said, they've made a lot of investments in that team um, through the draft. And this year they went out and got two big free agents on the defensive line too. So uh, defensive line slash linebackers. So I think the NFC North was a good call on your part there. Yeah. I think the only other one that stands out to me is the AFC South because Houston's defense should still be pretty good. Indianapolis kind of like green Bay is, is ascending. Like they, they've been spending a lot of investment in the draft and in free agency on the defensive side of the ball. Jacksonville was great two years ago. Who knows how good they're going to be this year. Um, But all three of those teams show up in the 10 toughest opponents, according to Warren Sharp's defensive efficiency metric. Tennessee ranks 18th, but kind of like Detroit, we know the Titans want to have that sort of ground and pound identity with tough defense. So that's another one where I think you might want to fade players based upon the defenses they could be facing. With that said, you know, Houston and Indianapolis, like the quarterbacks and all the other situations on those teams, like I just want to be invested in those offenses anyway. I kind of don't care what they're playing. It's definitely part of the the allure there. But uh, sorry, we got sidetracked from our game here. Bus Association, Mike Evans. Uh, Go back a little bit of a throwback to a, a viral video. Too many cooks. And by that, I mean there's too many too many options in the passing attack, potentially. With uh, you know Bruce Arians is the head coach there. He's probably going to want to spread it out, have a little bit more of an area assault. Could benefit Mike Evans. But at the same time, you've got Chris Godwin ready to take the next step. You've got O.J. Howard ready to take the next step. You've still got Cameron Brait. You've got their uh, sixth or seventh round pick, Scotty Miller, who's earning rave reviews. Maybe Ronald Jones gets involved in the passing game. So there could be a situation where instead of Mike Evans, for years and years, he was just a, a you know a black hole of targets. He'd lead the league or be near the top. Could be a case where that number comes down for him and that and that depressed volume takes a little bit of his the eliteness off of his uh, his statistics. And you know, imagine he'd still have a good season, but like where you'd want to draft Mike Evans, you might be a little disappointed. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think even if he does maintain most of his volume, he might just get vultured enough at the goal line, like in the red zone for that to be the major reason why he's not returning value. Like if he's not scoring touchdowns and they're going to OJ Howard and Cameron Brait and Ronald Jones, and maybe Jameis rushes a couple in and Mike Evans ends up with, you know, a Julio-esque line of 1200 yards and only three touchdowns or something crazy like that. I think that could be another reason. Um, Next up, Keenan Allen. I think the only one for me here is that the same with the Camara and it's that father time takes out Philip Rivers because Allen has proven he's the number one option there. He's an elite route runner, an elite receiver. So, uh, you know, putting past injuries aside, I think that the main concern there is that that father time catches up to Philip Rivers. 
So you don't have any concerns about his touchdown scoring ability because he hasn't been a real prolific touchdown threat. Uh, I think he's had six each of the past two years, which is fine, but he's not delivering on the same level as some of those other wide receivers that are going in that round two to round three range. Right. I think Keenan Allen, for me, falls into that range, though, because of his um, his PPR scoring. Like, he's had the last two years, his last two health years, he had 102 and 97 catches. So he's one of those guys that you accept the fact that he's not going to have an elite touchdown scoring thing because you know his volume and week-to-week consistency is going to be there for your team. All right, next up, T.Y. Hilton. Uh, tight end time it was the, the association I clicked for this and that uh, Jack Doyle is going to be coming back. We saw how valuable Eric Ebron could be to that offense. And uh, I think T.Y. Hilton's still going to get his, but if there was a story I would tell myself as to why he would disappoint, it would be because the tight ends just turn into monsters. And they get all, they get all the touchdowns, they're moving the sticks, and T.Y.'s production is far more up and down than we would hope. Yep, I had the same thing. Target share shrinkage, uh, to borrow from George Costanza. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, like you said, in addition to the tight ends, you also have to worry about Funchess, who's you know a glorified tight end. But yeah, that's definitely the concern with Hilton for me as well. Uh, let's get over to the running back position next. Carry on Johnson. Uh, Lions. <laughs> Much like with the Bengals. Uh, you know, we talked about a lot of this earlier when we were in the Kenny Galladay section, but the, the game script concerns, the, the crowded backfield, the lack of potential opportunity if he's losing out on goal line touches to CJ Anderson or passes to Theo Riddick. Just overall, the makeup of that team for a guy you'd want to be a feature back is, is I think, what could be the killer for him. Derek Henry. <laughs> uh, I had put down skillets for hands because uh, his involvement in the passing <laughs> game is uh, is lackluster. But I also think you you have to worry about whether the success he showed late in the season is going to be the kind of thing that the Titans are going to reinvest in and try and start out from the get-go, or are they going to go back to their split backfield thing? Yeah, I put Deion Lewis for this one. Right. I, we just don't know exactly how that timeshare is going to work out a year removed. And I... I, I think that Henry's probably still going to see plenty of targets to be, you know, viable or not targets, but plenty of opportunity to be, you know, viable as that kind of fringy running back one, uh, but at least a running back two. But you never know, man. If Deion Lewis goes into a full split with him again, that's going to kill both their value, and I, I would really hate to see that. Yep. Julian Edelman. Uh, no Gronk. Uh, Gronk. I mean, I know I've seen some splits where Edelman has has thrived without Gronk, but. Uh, the fact that Gronk is no longer in that offense, Brady's a year older. Like I, I struggle to see a situation where I'm really loving picking Julian Edelman, whether it's because the yardage isn't quite there or the touchdowns aren't quite there. But uh, I just think that offense is going through a, a fundamental shift right now, and it's it's tough to to buy into it. This is the player where I put Father Time, not only for Tom Brady but also for, for Edelman him. himself. That's yeah. totally fair. <laughs> yeah, that's my main concern with him is that if either one of them falls off the cliff, it's it's curtains for Edelman. Now. I've only mentioned running backs and wide receivers and, and I think just one tight end to this point. I, I think that quarterback is a little harder to kind of associate that bust potential with because I feel like too many of the responses are going to be too generic, right? We would either say injury or offensive line or passing volume based upon you know game planning. Do you think that that's fair? Do you think it's even relevant to try to do this sort of exercise with quarterbacks? No, I think you're right on the nose there. And also because so few quarterbacks, I think, would require the draft capital investment from a fantasy perspective to be considered a bust like the list of guys that you would draft where you would actually feel upset if they didn't deliver is probably going to be what four or five names deep otherwise you're you're waiting on guys and then at that point you're not going to be too upset if they quote unquote bust yeah i think one of the ways you can try to identify busts in you know quarterback adp or quarterback rankings is by looking at you know the overall team looking at what the who the weapons are what the offensive scheme projects to be like uh, you can look at, you know, touchdown rate. We talked about using that as an indicator of someone who might be doomed for aggression. The problem is, is that, as you've mentioned a couple times on the show, the fantasy community is so large and so sharp at this point that I feel like all that stuff gets baked into ADPs and into rankings. Do you see that happening as well? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there. Um, and, uh, you know, years ago, the late round quarterback theory popularized by our, our good friend J.J. Zacharyson uh, wasn't as as commonplace as it is today but i used to get ridiculed in my my main fantasy league many years ago when i would wait on a quarterback and now other people are doing it and you know my dad won the league last year because he waited on a quarterback and happened to get patrick mahomes so i I think just the the kind of the game and the oversaturation and the aptitude of the average fantasy player has changed so much that it wouldn't be really fair to play this game with quarterbacks 
Yep, totally. Now, Mahomes was basically a cheat code in any fantasy <laughs> format last year, but especially in the Scott Fishbowl. And before I ask you about your team, Alex, I want to make up for a mistake I did on the last episode, which was jump into Scott Fishbowl discussion without you know, providing some sort of context for listeners who might not be familiar with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Scott, the Scott Fishbowl is a very large tournament that it's kind of a pros versus Joes situation where there are a bunch of different analysts and some uh, fans who get invited to these leagues. There are Excuse me. There are 100 leagues with 12 teams each, so it's 1,200 players uh, playing across 100 leagues. And go to scottfishbowl.com for the details. But essentially, you are playing in your own separate league. But at the end of the year, when the playoffs start, if you make the playoffs, you are essentially in a you know top half of the scores advance for each week of the playoffs. I think starting in week 13. And mm-hmm. so with that in mind, this is a super flex format. There are some unique scoring settings. Again, go to the website to figure that out uh, if you're interested. But it's, it's a great time. Uh, these drafts are crazy, and no two of them are alike. It's, it's very cool the way that Scott sets up these leagues so that you can kind of take whatever approach you want to the draft. And, you know, before the season starts, it can look like genius, depending upon, you know, the eye of the beholder. With all that explanation out of the way, Alex, I'm, cur- I'm curious, how is your Scott Fishbowl team shaping up? Are you still in the middle of your draft? Mine, I think, is in the, the 19th round as I, as I speak to you. Yeah, I think we're in round 18 or 17. I actually think I saw the email coming through that I'm on the clock right now. And I don't know. I feel like I hate my team. It might end up working out. Like you said, it's tough to tell because Scott does such a great job with crafting unique rules that kind of change how everybody approaches the draft. And since it's not, you know, as we just talked about a moment ago with the aptitude of all these fans and playing in more traditional leagues, everybody's kind of on the same idea, same wavelength. People are trying out different strategies. It's a deep league. So... I could I could see my team having some success. I also, as I said, I just feel so worried about it. The first couple rounds, I got sniped on all of the guys I wanted, and I just kind of tilted into oblivion and, and took, like, sort of best player available. Like, I t- ended up having to take Le'Veon Bell in the first round, and I hated myself for it. I wish I'd taken a wide receiver I thought I'd get coming around the turn, and then, of course, all of them got sniped from me, so it was just falling apart from there. But it's a very fun league. Uh, I'm excited to see how this team shakes out. So has drafting in a unique format like this, do you feel like that's helped you prepare in other ways for you know more standard or traditional leagues in 2019? I think the benefit of playing in a league like Scott Fishbowl so early is that it sort of helps you identify guys who you're going to want to keep an eye on as late round sleepers or early waiver wire ads that you might not have to pick up in a more traditional league. So, you know, you look a little deeper at the the ends of the tight end pool and you're you're analyzing a little bit more some of the secondary and tertiary receivers for for kind of breakout potential or guys that could be really good values later in the drafts like for instance i just got Deshaun hamilton a round or two ago and i'm excited about that possibility of him in uh in denver you know depending on how emmanuel sanders comes back and and other things work out yeah i've seen players drafted in my league that i didn't even know existed uh apparently <laughs> there is Apparently, there's a tight end named Dawson Knox who plays for the Buffalo Bills, and I guess this is potentially the Charles Clay replacement. Now, again, before the draft, I had no idea who that is, but now I have to think about you know what you know a tight end might look like in that offense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what's great about it is it it gives you another level of depth, and you're kind of exposed to some other guys. And like you said, when somebody takes a player like that, you're um, well, I'm just looking up Dawson Knox because he was a rookie. That's what I thought. He's 6'4", 254, so that's, that's a nice size for a tight end. But it makes you consider some of these other guys and uh, round out your research a little more. So if things go haywire in your drafts later in the summer, you're a little more prepared for it. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a ton of fun. I'm really looking forward to you know getting the season going and seeing how the team plays out. Because like you, I have no idea if what I've drafted is any good. Uh, I, I got backed into Travis Kelsey as my first round pick because like you, I, I wanted one of those quote unquote big five running backs, you know, Elliot, yep. Kamara, McCaffrey, Barkley, or David Johnson. And those guys went one through five. I was sitting there at the sixth pick. I didn't want to spend up for Melvin Gordon or Le'Veon Bell like you did. And I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's see if the tight end premium does matter because yep. I, you know, I kind of wanted to play against type. I think that's the other thing I like about this format is again, because it's so different, I, I feel like I'm actually incentivized to try unique strategies. Uh, I mm-hmm. think the fact that it's a 1,200-person tournament also incentivizes us to do that, to maybe color outside the lines a little bit more 
and go after you know unique roster constructions, ones that you know might give us uh, a more unique lineup you know towards the end of the season when we're in the playoffs and we're trying to differentiate right. against all the other best teams. And that that's a great point too because I was trying to do something similar. I was going to go for a little bit more of a Konami code um, appeal at quarterback and wait on the position. And I'm assuming your listeners all know, but the Konami code is what we refer to with running quarterbacks because they give you that added bonus and. Scott put into the rules additional benefits for running quarterbacks. So it's the first time I didn't think I would ever utter the sentence, but I was mad when somebody sniped Josh Allen from me in the later rounds because I had I had Dak and I was going to try and get Josh Allen and somebody took him out from under me. Yeah, I took Julian Edelman over Lamar Jackson at 5.06. And as soon as Lamar Jackson went at the turn, uh, I was immediately tilted. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, I, I was able to settle for Dak Prescott uh, in the middle of the sixth round, which I think is fine. Like, I think that he's also got that Konami appeal. I think that the Dallas offense is a little underrated, as, as weird as that is to say. Usually the Cowboys are always a little overrated, but I, I'm excited about Dak, but I really wanted Lamar Jackson. Yeah, no, I feel you. It's, and that's what's so painful in these drafts is you, you try to, it's not, it's a non traditional format and non traditional flow. So you think you can wait on a guy and somebody else picks him up right before he gets back to you and it's devastating yeah great stuff well i wish you the best of luck alex in the scott fishbowl i hope that my team does well also and uh i don't know let's let's sign off here what else um what else can people look forward to with from you over the offseason you just joined the team at four for four uh what are you working on right now well i'll have a, a bunch of articles coming out over the summer here uh the first of which is a wide receiver draft strategy so you can probably expect to hear uh or to read about a few of the guys we talked about here and plenty more just kind of trying to take a big look at you know what types of values there are how you might want to approach the position this year uh with everything that's changing in the, the good old landscape of football that that chaotic that beautiful chaotic mess as we called it earlier great stuff alex listeners you can follow him at alex gelhar on twitter and you can follow me at greg sauce if you want to see what sort of beautiful chaos alex cooks up for the fantasy football season head over to 444.com to lock in your season-long subscription and don't forget to check out draft's best ball championship by searching for draft in the app store or going to draft.com and remember to use our promo code 4 for 4 the number 4, F-O-R, then the number 4 again, when you make your first deposit to get free entry into one of their best ball drafts. Otherwise, please rate and review the show on iTunes if you'd be so kind, and we'll catch you next time on the Most Accurate Podcast.